they were incalculated with the values of the defense of the, of the homeland of the fatherland. And this was very important part of their training. And you can tell that. So if you read the interviews, you see that even though they are now retired, they're elderly people, they still have very strong feelings about Russia's defense and Russia's protection. And so that's very important. So the training is psychologically very profound in that the values of patriotism are incalculated into these people. And they, they simply, whether right or wrong, you know, they have to believe in that and they're committed to that. They're like soldiers in this invisible war. This is The Way Podcast. The militias needed to have a heads up that I was coming. I personally think they didn't, you know, like in chess. So that's how deep the addiction goes. I've been incarcerated most of my life. Having a conversation with Where they've been given no option, either join or die. Snipers, and it was a military. J. Cole came and hung out most of the fire session. I'm standing at the studio blast looking out into the studio. If you want to know more about The Way Podcast, go to podcasttheway.com. This is Bill with The Way Podcast on FM 91.7, WHS Stores at the top of the hour, and 90.3 WRIU South Kingston at the top of the hour. Today, I'll be sitting with Philip Kofachevic, is a researcher of Russian and East European state security and intelligence organizations. He currently teaches at the University of San Francisco and runs the Czechist Monitor, a blog on the operations and personalities of the Soviet and Russian state security intelligence organizations so today we're going to be talking about the kgb some illegal kgbs and just a whole variety in that topic be sure to go podcasttheway.com give a five-star rating share the show tell your friends every little bit helps that's podcasttheway.com and without further ado i'll play the episode just to dive right into it or to give a good understanding like what is the russian kgb well, the, the KGB stands for the Committee uh, for State Security. And this was essentially the Soviet main intelligence and counterintelligence agency. Essentially, it's like putting the CIA and the FBI and the NSA together into one organization. So this was the KGB. You can, you can think of it as, the, as kind of the, the, the Soviet deep state. Yeah. So when um the Cold War was going on, we say it's uh Russia versus America, but it's kind of like KGB versus CIA. Uh, uh, yes, and that that's not completely accurate because there was a directorate within the KGB called the First Chief Directorate, which was in charge of foreign intelligence. But there were other directorates. For instance, the Second Chief Directorate was essentially the equivalent of the USKG, uh, FBI, sorry, the FBI. And also there was a directorate that dealt with uh, cryptography and, and, and surveillance of electronic things. That was also kind of the, the equivalent of the NSA. Essentially because the Soviet system was fundamentally different from the US system. The Soviet Union was a dictatorship and the KGB was, was a, a central a fundamental mechanism 
to to run this dictatorship. And so what you what you had within the KGB is is, is not only let's say uh, you know foreign intelligence activities. You also had a lot of domestically oriented operations that were designed to uh, stifle the the dissent against the Soviet government. I just uh, interviewed somebody who's a journalist in Russia, actually, like two episodes ago. Is that like what the KGB would target, like the journalists, those kind of people or? Uh, uh, Yes, essentially anybody who was critical of the Soviet system was uh, put under the surveillance by the KGB. The KGB had a lot of informers within the Soviet society. In fact, uh, looking at the KGB archives, I come across a lot of reports by these informers. And I can say that uh, in any uh, company, in any uh, university, in any school, essentially in any enterprise within the Soviet Union, there was at least one person who was informing the KGB on the attitudes of the people working there. Pretty much spies everywhere. It's not just like an American like war government thing. It's just everyday life. You can't speak your mind too freely. You sort of have your freedom of speech limited. Uh, yes, the Soviet Union was the society of control. Uh, and uh, the Soviet government and the Communist Party that was essentially in charge of the government in the Soviet Union was using the KGB as an instrument of domestic control. And this is why we have to distinguish, you know, between the the KGB and let's say the CIA and the FBI, even though we know that the FBI also had and still has informers within the United States, right? Uh, Different if we talk about extremist groups within the United States, they're also covered by the FBI. However, in the Soviet Union, you had pretty much everybody was a suspect. Of course, there was no free media. There was no free media. All media was controlled by the state. So the repressive function of the KGB was exponentially greater compared to anything going on in the United States or any other democracy, which is not to say that in the democracies we also don't have uh, a lot of operations directed against possible uh, possible uh, critics of the government. Yeah, so for us, where it's like these uh, extremist groups who want to like overthrow capitals, for Russia, it's just anybody who kind of speaks... How like what um what would happen like what's a consequence for saying something? Well, I, it, it it depends. It could be it could be losing one's job, it could be losing an opportunity at getting promoted. Even worse than that, it could be it could be it could be arrest. It could be you know sentencing. It could it it could mean being sent to the gulag. But of course, we have to look at different periods of Soviet history. You know, so under Stalin, any kind of critique was very of the government was very dangerous for the person doing it because this person could easily end up in the labor camp and perhaps even uh, get shot. However, yeah. as the Soviet Union, as, as as Stalin died and other leaders came to uh, came to lead the Soviet Union, there was a there was a sense of uh, a, an environment that was less repressive. Okay, from like today, since that time, it's been the slow sort of easing up, letting up. Yes, you you can think of it uh, like that. So, for instance, let's say uh, in under Stalin, you know, saying saying you know, down with the Communist Party would land you in jail. 
but under Khrushchev or under Brezhnev, this would lead to, let's say, a, a conversation at the, at, the, at, the, at, the KG, at the KGB safe house or the, uh, the KGB headquarters where they would tell you, you know, well, I mean, don't, don't do that again. And if you do it again, then there will be some repercussions for you. Which is not to say that 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 those those really critical dissidents would not be punished, and would not be uh, um, essentially some of them in the 70s were were expelled from the country. Uh, I think your listener will recognize the name of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, for instance, um, who uh, wrote the Gulag Archipelago, a gigantic study of the Gulag system in the Soviet Union. He also was awarded the Nobel Prize for literature, uh, and, and 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 so there were there were some famous dissidents who actually had to leave the Soviet Union. That was in the 70s. In the 80s too, there were uh, there were dissidents leaving the Soviet Union, and also people who stayed within the Soviet Union were subjected to the KGB surveillance and harassment, and some of them were jailed. Andrei Sakharov, for instance. In the seventies, like some of that gulag that that book covered, like what kind of stuff was like what was so severe that won the uh, Nobel Prize? What was some of the stuff he covered? Well, it, it was it was the history of the gulag. It, it started out in the nineteen thirties, so the, the the book is about the history of the whole system of the labor camp system. And it was it was just that it was it was it was published. It came out in the seventies. Okay. And Solzhenitsyn was helped by many people who provided testimonies. He was able to get a lot of testimonies for the people who were actually in the gulag, in the camps, and who were released from the camps in the 1950s. After Stalin died, a lot of the camps were, were closed, but not, not all of them. Gotcha. Were these camps kind of like concentration camps or like severe, or were they kind of like prisons? Well, uh, they they had uh, different different types of camps, uh, depending on the on the on the the of the kind of the violation that the person did against the system. There were some very very severe camps uh, that 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 people died in. There were others that that allowed some movement in and out, but essentially they were very repressive, and, okay. and they also left people. Who, who were released later on, they left them with deep psychological traumas. So we, we, we need to think about, about the psychological issues, not only the, the, the physical issues. You know, somebody may have survived and yet would have difficult time adjusting uh, to, the, to the ordinary life ever again. Yeah, we have that just with our own prisons from people just being arrested for an average crime. And they just have issues from that, let alone who knows what these people could be going through. So I understand that. And then um, I cut you off a bit when you started talking about the 80s. So can you, um, what were you uh, going on about with that? Well, I mean, the, the, the 1980s were the time of the of kind of the, uh, the, 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 the spy games between the CIA and the K, KGB. 1985 was the year of the spy because there were many many spies arrested on both sides and, and the CIA uh, it, later on it turned out that the KGB had uh, a, 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 a double agent a penetration agent within the CIA his name was Aldrich Ames 
who started working for the for the KGB in the 1980s and then was arrested in the early 90s. And also there was a penetration of the FBI um, quite about the, 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 the same time. Richard Hansen uh, was, was, the, was the, the double agent. He worked in the FBI. At the same time, he was um, passing on the, the, the classified information uh, to the KGB and later on to the Russian successor of the KGB. And he was, uh, he was arrested in 2001. And right now, both Aldrich Ames and Hansen are in the, the top security prisons and they serve sentences for life. I'm surprised you say the FBI too, because I remember covering a topic. I forget the uh, his name, but he uh, used to be very high up in the KGB during the Cold War, and then he decided to help out America, so he would send letters under uh, Agent Sniper. That was his code name. Uh, yes, yes, you're, you're talking about Mark Golemievsky. He worked for the Polish intelligence in the 1950s, and then he was exfiltrated into the West in the early 1960s. Uh, but that, that was that was a di- different that was a different That's period. So this was a, this was a person working for the Polish intelligence service who was connected to the KGB, and so he knew the secrets of the KGB as well as the Polish intelligence. And we have to remember that Poland at the time was within the Soviet sphere of influence. Poland was a member of the Warsaw Bloc, and the Polish uh, intelligence and the KGB worked closely against the West. Okay. So Golenievsky, he was, uh, he was, uh, uh, he knew uh, a lot about the agents the KGB and the Polish intelligence had in the West. So he was very, very valuable source for the CIA and the FBI and the MI6 and the MI5 and other Western European uh, security agencies because he he told them about the about the people within their ranks who worked for the, for the other side. And what kind of impact does this have? Because the way I see it right now is you tell the names of who works, who, where, and you sort of betray or you reveal these identities. But besides just the names of it, what kind of deep information or impacts does this stuff have? I mean, that that's a great question. You know, it's a question about the purpose of intelligence agencies in the first place. I mean... Do, do you know? Do we need to have spies at all? Uh, and if you look at you know the history of humanity, you'll see that there were spies from the beginning of of of, of this history. You can you can look at the Bible and you'll see spies there. And and even even before Bible was 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 written was put together, you had you had other civilizations that had spies. Some people have called espionage. The second oldest profession in the world, uh, so so that, that, that so like there that. must be some value to it, since uh, you know any government we can think of had spies. Uh, now talking about concrete cases, you know it, it depends who you ask. Of course, the intelligence agencies will tell you that you know they 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 perform fundamental service to the defense of the country against its enemies. There are some skeptics who are saying, well, you know, it's not, it's not the intelligence. You have to have the strong military, strong other things, diplomacy, uh, diplomacy being different, being in the open. Uh, 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 you don't have to have too many secrets. Um, I, I would say that it's important 
you know, you can, but you can never get the whole story because a lot of these things are classified. Even if one case is declassified, it is always connected to something that came in before or after that you may not know about. So we are essentially getting just different pieces of the puzzle. Yeah. And in my research, it's so interesting to uncover unknown uh, in new KGB operations uh, in the West that 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 nobody has written about before. And and my research is oriented at at at, at projects like that. And before like talking about what your research found, one thing that I find curious is like you said it yourself, like these documents have to be disclosed to the public and a lot of them are still private so doing your research how hard is it to actually get these files like how much info are you able to get and how much is still hidden and how much do you have to fight for well uh, <laughs> that's a great question you know uh, you know uh, because i studied the kgb and the kgb was um the security service of the country that fell apart you know, I have an advantage over those who are studying the security services of the countries which still exist, right? True. Because so the, the, the Soviet Union fell apart and there were some republics of the Soviet Union which became independent. Uh, countries like Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, and others. And those countries were and still are hostile to Russia. And so what happened was that those countries also had their KGB headquarters in their capitals. But as the Soviet Union fell apart, the Russians had no time to evacuate the files that belonged to the KGB in those capital cities. And so, for instance, in my research, Lithuania is very important because in Lithuania, what happened the, 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 the KGB files were, were essentially left intact. So in other words, what, what will happen in Lithuania, you had the regime change and the new regime, the new democratic regime essentially had no interest in keeping any of the files secret. Oh yeah, they're more than willing to share this. <laughs> and, 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 so, and so for me as a researcher, that's great because they're saying, okay, here are the files, you, know, you can take a look at them. And then finding out a lot of things that were that were secret during the Cold War and are still classified in Russia. And, and so by, by looking at the Lithuanian files, uh, I can uh, uh, say a lot about the, the general KGB structure. And, and especially what I'm interested in are the operations and the methods. And, and, and you can make an argument that some of these methods and the approaches are still being employed by the Russian intelligence of today in Putin's Russia. So there is also an applied uh, uh, emphasis in the research that I do uh, because they could be trying to develop, uh, let's say, similar type of operations right now as we speak. Well, first, I guess, what's some of these operations that you've seen before that are now being brought over to our world today? You know, uh, we can talk about uh, uh, foreign intelligence operations. And here, uh, and I, I, I'm sure you'll, you'll direct your listeners to my blog. Uh, so on my blog, I have a lot of translations that I did of the interviews of the former KGB 
undercover intelligence officers. Now in the KGB terminology, they are called illegals. And the reason they're called illegals is that they have no official cover. So let's say uh, a, you know, somebody who's, let's say, a, a Russian intelligence officer who works in the Russian embassy, you know, he is considered as having a legal cover. In other words, you know, he, 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 may, be, uh, he may be, let's say, the, the second secretary of the economic section, or he may be the embassy's cook or the embassy's driver. While at the same time, he's also, he's also spying, you know, doing, doing the espionage in the country that he or she's based in. So in other words, when this person gets caught, uh, because they have a diplomatic legal status, all, all, all they get is essentially the expulsion from the country. They are declared persona non grata and they leave the country. However, when we talk about illegals, we are talking about, let's say, Russian intelligence officers who are, let's say, in the United States, but who have no legal cover. In other words, they are pretending to be business people or students or professors or tourists. Uh, and if, But if they get caught, uh, they, can, they can end up in jail for a long time because they have no official cover. And, mm -hmm. and the Russian government can always say, well, we don't know them. We don't know who they are. They don't work for us. They're just uh, professors and yeah. students and uh, tourists and artists, journalists. Uh, so we are talking about two different categories of, of officers. And so what I have on my blog is the interviews of those uh, illegal undercover officers who were based around the world uh, under uh, uh, false names, even false nationalities which is the most amazing of all. In other words, you have a Russian person pretending to be a French person or a German person or a Spanish person or a Canadian. Um, and, and, and yeah, and yet, and, and so, uh, but nobody knows about that. Of course, they keep it secret. Not even their family members know about that. In fact, in fact, I have, uh, you know, I have a story of some, of, of uh, as, as people can check out on my blog, I have stories of intelligence officers whose kids did not know that their parents were uh, intelligence officers, that, they, that their kids thought that they were, you know, American or, uh, you know, Latin American, if they were based in Latin America, in Brazil or Uruguay or Argentina. And then they found out once their, their parents had to evacuate uh, quickly because they may have been exposed, they find out that they're actually not Argentinian or Canadian, that they're actually Russian. <laughs> so they don't speak any language or any Russian language. And so think about the, the kind of the personal shocks of the kids of these people. Yeah, you grow up your whole life, you're say 15, 16 at this point in time, whatever. And that's like, hey, um, hey, son. Yeah, so I lied. I'm actually a secret agent for another country. We have to leave now. You're not really this ethnicity. You're this, and uh, pack your bags. Like that's kind of what happens. Yes, yes, it does. And in fact, it happened not long ago, uh, in 2010. Uh, the FBI arrested uh, ten uh, Russian illegal intelligence officers who were based here in the United States. Uh, and and in, in a couple of cases, they had kids, uh, and those kids had to leave. They also left the United States, and they moved to Russia, but they, they were just 
they they were <laughs> and in fact it's interesting to follow their, their their stories as much as much as you can find about it on the internet because once again we are talking about uh, the, the 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 kinds of subjects which are typically classified however this particular case of the 10 illegals arrested in uh, in 2010 in the U United States was was fairly public it was public and those illegals were later exchanged for for uh, for the four uh, Russian intelligence officers who were spying for the West and were at the time in Russian jails. Okay, fair enough. And I have to ask just because the definitions confuse me a bit. So those same ten people I heard about and I read about, and Wikipedia calls them sleeper agents, but the way movies and TV shows go. A sleeper agent is somebody you say a code word and then they wake up and they realize they're an agent. I know that's not how it goes, but why are these people sleeper agents versus just an illegal KGB agent? Is there a difference? You know, I mean, a, a sleeper agent uh, is just, just a more colloquial term for an illegal agent. We are talking about people who are, I mean, they, they are not, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the Russian and the Soviet terminology, uh, they would be called officers because they're actually employed first by the Soviet and now by the Russian intelligence services. So they're officers. Agents in the Russian terminology are people who are working for the officers. In other words, they are people recruited by the officers to spy on their countries. So for instance, if a Russian intelligence officer recruits somebody, let's say in France, a French citizen, this person is called an agent. This person is an agent for the Russian intelligence, right? Okay. So, 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 so there's there's this kind of uh, uh, that's kind of the difficulty in terminology if you compare the Russian terminology and the U.S. terminology. Now, if you look at what these people did, uh, what they did was uh, first of all they were well trained in Russia in the Soviet Union first, and then Russia inherited the resources of the Soviet Union in terms of the, the, the training manuals uh, and, and uh, the human resources, the knowledge base of the Soviet Union. So, so, they, so if, 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 let's say if you look at the case of Yelena Vavilova and her husband, Andrei Bezrukov. So, uh, uh, so there is a memoir written by Yelena Vavilova that's uh, 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 based to some extent on her own autobiography and what she did here in the United States. By the way, she was one of the 10 people arrested in uh, 2010 in the United States. So okay. what she wrote in this memoir that was published in Russian uh, a few years ago, and I, I hope there's going to be a, a, an English translation soon. Uh, what she says that she was essentially chosen while she was at the university together with her husband, they were chosen as a couple because it's much easier. The Soviet, the KGB, and now the Russian intelligence determined that it's much easier to work as a couple rather than a single individual when we are talking about illegal agents, when we are talking about somebody pretending to be somebody who they are not, especially if they have a fake nationality. Because think about that for a second. Now, if you have a fake nationality, first of all, you have to speak the language of the country you're basing without any accent. Yeah. Se secondly, secondly, you have to, you know, uh, 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 
develop an alternative life history where you were born, where you went to school, who were your childhood friends, and all of that, you know. And, and, and so you have to be very careful, you know, to stay on the message in every single moment of your life uh, because your, 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 your cover depends on it. And, and so if people look at the, mem- the, the interviews that I translated on my blog, they'll see the immense psychological effort that these agents had to make not to speak out in their native language. And this is so different, difficult. Think about that. Not, not even when you are asleep. If somebody wakes you up, suddenly you are not supposed to say anything in your native language. So they had a lot of different tricks and strategies and techniques how to make sure that they stay on the message, that they, they never speak Russian. And so one of the of the of the agents that that was mentioned in the interviews, I, I translated uh, uh, three of her interviews on my blog. Her name is Lyudmila Nuykina, and she said that she made Russian language her enemy. In other in other words, in in her own mind, she could she 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 said to herself, "I'll never speak Russian again." So it was very difficult for her when she eventually had to go back to Russia. She, she almost forgot the language, <laughs> even though it was her native language, which is quite amazing. But it's possible because of this effort that she made to, to, to pretend to be French, uh, uh, to pretend to be any nationality that, that, that spoke French language. The French, the French language was, was her main language. Yeah, acting is hard enough, but then you act your whole life. But then you don't even act. You have to like make. You have to change yourself, sort of make it reality. Yeah, you... this is this is the point. You know, the you know actors, actresses. You know, they do a role, they step out of it, and now they're the the regular selves. But here in this case, we have somebody has to live it. These people have to live it, and sometimes they live and die with it. In other words, they die as illegals, and they are they're just they just. Die and the, the, of course the Russian, the Soviet government in the past and now the Russian government they, they cannot say anything about that. They just they they that's just it. And and I and I have the case that I also translated. Uh, it's it's on my blog. A, a person died and he he had to die as a as a French citizen. He had to he died in the hospital without being able to reveal his identity. And the, the Moscow Center, they had no idea what happened to him. So they had to send another agent to another illegal agent to this place in France to find out what happened to their to their to their previous agent. And, and this person found out that their agent was actually dead. And, and so that 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 was the end of the story. And this person died as a as a, as a French person, and, and that's how it was. And so so that that's that this is the ultimate sacrifice that we are talking about. Yeah, that's really tragic. Like, you literally dedicate your whole life. It's a form of war where you just put your whole life on the line, but you just put yourself by that point until the very end. That's tragic. Yeah. Uh, yes, and the way uh, the way they were trained, especially during the Cold War, was that this was this was the, uh, they had to do it because this was the, the 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 existence of the Soviet Union was on the line. So in other in other words, they were. They were incalculated with the with the values of the defense of the of the homeland of the fatherland, and this this was very important part of their training, and and, and you you can tell that. So if, if if you read the interviews, you see that even though they are now retired 
they're elderly people, they still they still have very strong feelings about 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 Russia's defense and Russia's protection. Uh, and so that that's that's very important. So the training is psychologically very profound in, in that the values of patriotism are incalculated into these people. And, and they, they 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 simply they they whether right or wrong, you know, they have to believe in that and they're committed to that. They're like soldiers in this invisible war. Yeah, that woman you mentioned, I think I read that she even had to, like, she forced herself to think in English. Like, she wouldn't even let herself think in Russian or to fully commit into that. But what did this, you said the training, like, what kind of training would they go through? What did that look like? Uh, well, the, the training, the training was, it's, it's, it's amazing if you look at the memoirs and the interviews, Apparently, you know, the KGB, and this was in the 1980s, they could recreate, they could essentially recreate the life in the West for a selected group of people. They, For instance, they, according to Yelena Vavilova, in her memoir, she talks about a house that was equipped with, with, with Western appliances, and that, that was essentially the, the kind of a piece of the West in the Soviet Union in the 1980s. Because they had to learn everything, you know. It's it's not you know we have to kind of go back, go back to how it was back in the 1980s. You know, you know, no internet, no digital communication. So it's kind of difficult. It was very difficult for the people living in the Soviet Union to know uh, uh, concretely about anything that was going on in the West. They had the government propaganda telling them about the West, but for the KGB officers, you know, they had to know the truth of the West. So the KGB, essentially in her case and her husband's case, they recreated a, a, a essentially the inside of a house, the way they would live in the West at the time, the appliances, the, 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 the films, the books, everything was there. They had to become, in their case, they had to become Canadians because they had, they, they were provided with Canadian birth certificates. And so the, so the KGB, had a special department that was, and they, I mean, the Russian intelligence still does, and other, of course, intelligence agencies also have departments dedicated to faking uh, documents of other countries. And so, so they had, so they had, they had fake Canadian birth certificates. And what happened was that they, they were, they were actually real people, the, the, the kids who died, the babies who died in Canada, and so they were kind of the identities were picked up by somebody who was working for the Soviets in Canada, and, and were uh, because they were they were real Canadians, but they died as kids. So Vavilova and her husband they assumed the identities of of real Canadians, uh, and they pretended to be Canadians, and then and then from Canada they moved to the United States, and so uh, because they they probably had a slight accent. They would tell their friends in the United States that they were, you know, Canadians who grew up in the in the in the, in the French part of Canada and were speaking French as native language. And so that they explained the accent by saying, you know, we grew up French, but then we learned English. So, so that that was their cover story, uh, and, and they seem to be very successful in that because you know they 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 fooled a lot of people. Uh, in, in, in the United States. And I, I'm sure many of their neighbors were shocked to find out that they were not ordinary 
Canadians living in the United States, they were actually, you know, Russian spies. Their kids were shocked. We know that for a fact. Yeah, I know that would work on me because nobody's going to like really critique someone. It's um, it's funny because actually my job, I do research and it's stuff that I have to sign. It's federal, like I have to sign stuff and be secretive with. And one of my coworkers is from Ukraine. And because that's close enough, I always like joke with them like, oh, so you're a spy, right? You're uh, <laughs> that's why you're doing this research, huh? <laughs> but that's uh, like the, 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 the whole point is that. You know, those people typically that uh, you could never tell were spies. They are spies. Now, in other words, it's the, it's the opposite. It's the opposite, you know, that that there's just people who can. It's, it's difficult even for the FBI. You know, if you, if you look at, if you, if you read the, the memoirs of the, the former FBI agents and the FBI veterans, it's very difficult. Counterintelligence is very, very difficult. And it's also difficult to get a conviction in court because so much of the information is classified uh, and, and so it's it's very very difficult and we know that we know that sometimes the other side you know uh, has false defectors you know people who pretend to be defectors but actually are sent to disinform the other mm-hmm. side uh, and, and that's something that the KGB was very very skilled at doing in fact in my research what I talk about in the opera- Operation Horizon, uh, 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 that's, uh, uh, that's the operation of the uh, KGB counterintelligence, the, the, the second chief director. You know, the, the illegal uh, agents we talked about before belong to the first chief director, foreign intelligence. But also the counterintelligence of the KGB had agents in the West. And so this Operation Horizon is about how the KGB in Lithuania trained agents uh, and, and would send them to Germany uh, and, 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 and they, would be, they would be trained to offer their services to the German, West German intelligence and also the CIA that was also based in Germany and, and pretend of course that they would begin working against the Soviet Union, whereas they were sent uh, to, to work for the Soviet Union, right, and to pass on false information to the CIA and the BND. That reminds me of, I saw the Spy Museum, which is, like, amazing. I highly recommend seeing. They have this exhibit where there's this giant tunnel underneath ground they were constructing and building, and the whole idea was that this tunnel would lead the West forces right under this base where they could get all the information on the Russians, and all that. However, the person in charge of this was actually a Russian spy who would give them like a little bit of true information. But basically, America and the Western side just spent a bunch of money on this wicked, elaborate trick. So that's kind of what this is, where they give a little right information, just enough like, oh, see, we, we're good at our jobs. We know what we're doing. But Russia has them as a plant. So they just disrupt everything, or so they collect, or just both. Well, I think you're referring to the Berlin Tunnel. Yes, uh, that that was uh, that was constructed in the 1950s, and so the, the the person. So what happened was that the the KGB at the time they had a an agent in the in the British intelligence, and his name was George Blake, and so George Blake was able to find out about about the tunnel 
even before it, it was it was constructed. So from the very beginning, the KGB knew about this tunnel being constructed, but they had to let it go because because if 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 they would act on it, then of course the the MI6 and the CI would 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 realize that they they knew about it, and and, and so the suspicion would fall on George Blake. Uh, so so essentially, so in order to protect George Blake in his position in the British intelligence, the KGB had to pretend that they did not know about the tunnel being constructed and later on about being operational. So 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 it's it's a it's a very complex game where let's say within the same organization you have some people who know what's going on and the others who don't know what's going on. Because the, the, the people in the KGB who knew about the tunnel, they, 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 if they informed the Russian military, the Soviet military in Germany at the time, then this would, the Soviet military would, you know, people would talk about it and this would be passed on to the other side. So what they decided to do, they decided to let it go, to let it be constructed. And then they would use it to pass on disinformation, essentially false information to the other side. Because, oh, okay, okay. because in the beginning, the CIA and the MI6 had no idea that the other side knew about the tunnel. So in other words, the point is that you have to make the situation where the other side doesn't know that you know. Yeah. So, so as soon as you know that you know, as they know that yeah. you know, then they, of course, change everything. And this is what happened. And, and George Blake was, was eventually exposed and he was arrested. He was jailed. Uh, and then he escaped from jail, which is also an interesting story. He was able to escape from jail in the UK and was transferred first to Germany and then to the Soviet Union, where he lived a, a long life, a uh, very long life. And he, he passed on last year. He was, 90, uh, 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 he was 98 years old. Eh, not bad for him. <laughs> so yeah, he, was, he, was, he was one of the, I'd say, the, the luckiest of the Cold War because he adjusted well to the life in the Soviet Union. Uh, he, he, uh, he remarried, uh, he had a family in the Soviet Union, and he, 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 was, he, was, he was well accepted. Some other uh, Western defectors to the Soviet Union, you know, spies who were able to escape uh, to the Soviet Union and get away from the, uh, from the, the, you know, the arm of justice in the West, they were not. They were not as lucky. Uh, they they could not adjust to living the Soviet Union, uh, uh, and, and they had difficult time. And, and some of them died early, died young. Um, uh, Kim Philby, of course, is the best known of the of the of the British uh, British spies who worked for the first first for the NKVD. Uh, 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 then the NKGB and the KGB because he started. He was recruited in the 1930s, uh, the, the era of Stalin, and then he continued working for the for the Soviet intelligence until he was finally exposed in the early 1960s. But he was he was still able to escape. He was still able to escape and get to the Soviet Union before being arrested by the British. You know, sometimes you know you, you 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 don't know you know sometimes people get away whether this is on purpose or not there are so many you know there are so many different games being played at the same time and sometimes the best guide to understanding espionage is actually reading good spy fiction yeah so i would like to recommend 
the novels by John Le Carré uh, to your listeners, uh, because I, I think they reflect well the complexity of espionage, especially you know his novels like the the, the Spy Who Came In from the Cold and the Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, the early novels. I really recommend them to your listeners. It's real with how everybody interacts. It's real about what you're worried about and what you're dealing with. That That's what makes it stand out. Yes, ex- exactly what, what you get. Of course, you, you, you're not going to get you know, the, the, the actual operations, but you're get, getting the atmosphere. You, you're uh, getting the sense of h- how it is to be uh, in the inside of the of the of the spy spy business. Of course, you know if you want to learn about actual operations, you've got to read intelligence history. You've got to read the work of historians, you know, who spent days and months and years in the archives uh, and trying to get at uh, uh, some kind of objectivity. They 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 search for objectivity, but sometimes the evidence is not there to be able to connect everything, to put everything together. And so we have to talk about, you know, the in the West as well, you know, a lot of information is classified and, and it's, it's kind of slowly being declassified. And the, the US is doing quite a lot of it. The CIA has a, has a website where there are hundreds of declassified CIA documents. The FBI also has a website where a lot of declassified documents can be found. Uh, the other services in other countries are not as forthcoming with uh, documents and the declassification process. You know, up to the early 1990s, the MI6, which is the premier British foreign intelligence service, was, was not even talked about publicly in the media. Uh, uh, so in, in other words, even the existence of the MI6 was 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 kind of kept secret, even though of course people knew it existed, but people could not really speak about it openly uh, in the in the in in different government reports. So 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 f- for me, in terms of the KGB and the documents of the KGB, once again, uh, the 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 archives of of former Soviet republics are a a, a treasure trove. Um, because if, if we waited for the Russian archives, the, the, the archives of the FSB and the SVR, which are the main Russian intelligence services at this point of time, we'd, we'd have to wait you know, decades and decades uh, uh, because they are very much close to researchers. Of course, they have their own friendly researchers. You know, sometimes they release some material to the people that they, that they used to work for them, veterans who write histories that uh, put everything uh, in the positive light. And this is something I also studied in my work. I studied the way that the FSB, which is the, 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 the essentially the main Russian uh, counterintelligence service, the, the way they talk about their own history and the way they are trying to portray themselves in the, in the media, in Russia and beyond Russia, but especially in Russia, because they want to uh, uh, they want to develop uh, uh, a, a, an image that, that would resonate with Russian citizens today because they want to recruit people to work for them. And they also want to, to support, they want support from the Russian population for their activities. I want to ask you about that in one second. So the MI6, people knew they were around, but you couldn't release documents on it. Is there anything, like, are there any topics or anything that you really want to 
dive into that you know was a thing, but you just can't get any documents that are unclassified yet. So you just have to wait until you can get that information. Well, of, of course, there, there's plenty of it. There's plenty of it, but I'm, I'm trying to, in my research, I'm trying to focus on what I can get. So what I'm doing right now is I'm going through the Lithuanian KGB archive and trying to find out what I can I can find and tell a, a consistent story about. There's um, some stuff so, you see, but you just can't, like, there's stuff you want to see, but you just can't yet, or just, you're not even concerned about that? I, I mean... <laughs> It's, uh, there, there, there must be there, there yeah. must be but as, as i as i said i mean there, there are many there are many mysteries uh that that that, that, that people can 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 look for uh and you know so it's, it's difficult for me to say because i'm focusing on things that i can actually read about and there are plenty of things that that i can read about at this point of time that i can that i can tell based on the archives but there, there you know there, there are mysteries and you can always what would be great to find is, let's say that there is a, a conventional narrative about a historical event, you know, something that has been accepted essentially as the official narrative, let's say by the West and the East, and then to find something that actually overturns this narrative. In other words, you find some information that says, oh, no, it, it was something completely different, or there was something else going on at the same time that sheds a very different light on, on all the actors. So, for instance, let me just give you one example. Okay. Uh, in the history of World War II, so it was not up until the 1970s that there were official accounts of the British cryptography work during World War II. And the fact that the British were able to crack the German codes and were able to read the, 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 the German intelligence and military uh, uh, directives and coordination, right? So, and this was not publicly known up until the 1970s. So for instance, if you look at the histories of World War II written in the 1950s and the 1960s, they're talking about all these battles and different events without mentioning something that was a crucial component of everything. The fact that the British could actually find that, that they knew ahead of time to some extent what the Germans were planning to do. So, so definitely, and the, the, the US also was able to crack the Japanese codes and the communications of the Japanese military. And so, the, so they, they, they knew things that, that the historians essentially had no idea about. So they would write histories, let's say about, well, in, in terms of Europe, we could talk about the different European operations uh, the, the Normandy invasion uh, uh, and, and operations like that, gigantic operations, without mentioning something that was a crucial component. Yeah. And so definitely in the 1970s, when the knowledge about the ultra uh, and the work of the, of, the, of the British cryptography became known, you know, historians had to rewrite the history of World War II and put a lot more emphasis on the secret intelligence work. So this is essentially what intelligence history is about. Intelligence history is about revealing the missing dimension from different historical accounts. So for any, you know, for any event, you know, if you look at the US history, you know, the most one of the most controversial events in the US in the recent US history is of course the assassination of uh, JFK. Yeah. And, and then the, you know, the, the question is, you know, what what 
What can the KGB say about that? And would the KGB be truthful about what they are saying about that? What about the Lee Harry Oswald situation? Now, we know that he was, he, you know, he defected to the Soviet Union. He lived in the Soviet Union. His wife was Russian. Uh, and, and, and he redefected to the United States. A, there are thousands of books written about that. Are there any documents that one can find in the in the Russian archives or the maybe the Lithuanian archives that shed new light on that, uh, or any other any other event in in um, in the Cold War history between the U.S. and and the Soviet Union, or maybe the Soviet Union and other countries in the world. Um, so definitely, you know, it, it's very exciting. It's like it's like you never know what what you can find. You know, you have the let's say you have the report's title but you don't know what is in it. So sometimes you've got to read 20, 50 pages to find out what the, this person is talking about. And sometimes you find amazing things, but you've got to be careful, you know, because you have to, you have to, this information has to be checked because just because you find something in the archives doesn't mean that this reflects anything truthfully, right? Because there could also be fake documents in the archives that somebody put there to fool people doing research. It adds another level of complexity to whatever you're researching. So how do you know which one's real or fake? <laughs> like, <laughs> well, hey, this de depends on your expertise. You just have to do it quite a lot, and then you can kind of tell. Uh, sometimes it could just be the feeling. Sometimes perhaps you know that if you, know, if you study a historical figure and you know the way this figure spoke, and sometimes in the archives, you find a document that has this historical figure saying something that it just doesn't fit with his profile. And you say, well, you know, this must be fake. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, 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 not, it's not an easy business, that's for sure. There's a lot of enthusiasm and excitement that you can get, but it's not, it's not easy. And, and you know, in my work, I, I really want to stick to the facts, to what I can actually prove you know, to the evidence that I can provide. So what I have on my blog always has a link to sources. So when I translate something on my blog, I give you a link to the actual source in Russian so that anybody, you know, anybody who speaks Russian can check that. That's great. So part of this, uh, what you mentioned with the way we perceive history, you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but the FSB literally, literally, well, uh, yes, I, I wrote an article. I, I think you're referring to my article, the FSB Literati. So yes. what I wanted to do uh, in this article is look at is look at the the awards, the, the recipients of the awards from the FSB for literature, because interestingly, you know, see what they want to do. They want to create essentially a a, a, a PR image of the FSB for the Russian audience. So every year they have the ceremony, like the ceremony for the Oscars. They have a ceremony where they pick the best writer, the best film, the best, they even have the, the best uh, musical melody uh, and the best TV series. So, so, so the FSB has been doing this since 2016. And so, and I looked at this in 2018. So I have about 16, 16 winners of the first prize in literature. 
And what I wanted to find out is what are these books about? What is it that they are valuing that they are giving the first prize for? And what I found out is that actually what, what, they, what they like to see is the historical fiction about successful you know, KGB or Soviet intelligence operations in the past. Fiction that so, never happened? So, that well, I mean, they happened. I mean, oh. we, we we don't know. I mean, all we get is we get, let's say, a historical account of something that that sheds very positive light on the, uh, the you know the KGB or the, the the previous agencies to the KGB. Uh, so so somebody uh, so what somebody can do, they can actually compare. You know, they can compare the fiction and the fact. The problem is that we don't know what the facts are because the facts are classified. So all we get is essentially the fictional narratives. So for instance, one, one of the books is about, is about the, the operations of the, the Soviet intelligence uh, after uh, the Russian revolution in the 1920s and the 1930s in the Far East. In the, in, the, in the parts of China and not far from the Soviet Union. So in other words, interestingly, you know, a lot of these books are talking about the Far East and the operations in Asia rather than in Europe. And that's, 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 that's very interesting because, you know, the sense that, that people in the West typically get is that, you know, Soviet Union was only oriented towards the West. But actually in the East, they also had different operations and, and even though China was communist and still is communist, they had very tense relationship with China, especially starting in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. So you had a lot of lot of spy spy wars going on, spy operations, spy conflict going on in the East. So what was interesting to me is that a lot of these books talk about the East and not the West. Uh, of course, you know, they all have a happy ending. In other words, there's no, if, if you read the novels of John le Carré, you know, you see, you see a critical dimension. So in other words, when you, when, you read, when you read Western spy fiction, you may get a critical approach to the work of the CIA or the MI6. You may actually get the protagonists who are questioning the purpose of these activities. However, in Russian fiction, especially the fiction that's uh, sponsored by the, by the Russian intelligence, you essentially get heroes who always win in the end. You know, they always win, these officers, they always win in the end, it's a happy ending, the enemies are defeated, and the glory of Russia is preserved. I mean, you know, we have books like that here in the United States as well. You know? yeah. So it's, it's pretty much the same. However, in the US, you can also get books that, that move beyond that, You've got the authors like Norman Mailer, who the, his book about the CIA is very critical of the CIA. So, so, so in other words, th this is the main difference, is that our society allows freedom of speech and freedom of expression, whereas there, uh, mostly you get, you get uh, government propaganda. And if you want to write something that's critical of the government, at this point of time, so we're talking about Putin's Russia, you are essentially forced to immigrate. So quite a lot of investigative work of the current Russian intelligence agencies is actually being done by Russian journalists from the West.
because they 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 just cannot live in Russia anymore. Unfortunately, that's 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 very that's very tragic. That within the last 20 years, Russia has become very very repressive. I mean, we are not talking about the Stalin era repression. However, it's you know we don't know. It's 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 getting there. You know, people have disappeared. Uh, and people have been uh, have been killed. We know that different journalists over time have been assassinated. Of course, it's always difficult to it's always difficult to pinpoint to find a smoking gun, uh, and, and because the it's, the other side is never going to admit it, they'll deny forever. And in fact, this is something that that your listeners should be aware of: is that the intelligence agencies and agents and officers they're actually taught to lie. To lie and lie and lie, uh, so you've got to have you've got to have the other side always. So, so the most ideal research work would be, you know, to compare the archives of the, you know, the CIA and the KGB about the same event, and just like find that and middle if, ground. Yeah, yeah. Well, not well. I don't. Know. It may not be the middle ground. It may just be what what they were telling themselves about about the event. And some people have done work like that, you know, people who worked on the, you know, atomic espionage uh, here in the United States, uh, people who studied, you know, who studied the, the way that the Soviet Union was able to acquire the secrets of atomic weapons from the United States, because, because it's, they were able to do that in the 1940s, 1950s, early 1950s. Um, uh, were able actually to compare because right now a lot of things have been declassified here in the United States. Uh, but by no means everything. In fact, uh, there could have been operations in the 50s by the CIA that are still uh, uh, classified. When I when I say classified, it means that they are state secrets. And that if, if anybody, you know, if anybody, you know, passing on classified information is a felony. So yeah. <laughs> nobody wants to deal with that, right? We have to wait for the government to declassify. And then the question is, of course, you know, well, would they declassify everything? Well, probably not. <laughs> yeah, the um, UAPTF report, that was uh, like for the UFOs, unidentified flying objects, people say aliens, that stuff. The conspiracy theorists were saying, how come they only revealed like 20 pages or like, only a small portion of all of it but then somebody else told me that's because a lot of the information would reveal other classified stuff so you can take it how you want but they can't reveal it all because if you reveal this then you reveal something else that's classified over here uh that, that that's a great point uh by the way you know i have on my on my blog i have i translated an interview by the former uh, chief of the KGB, uh, of, of Vladimir Kryuchkov. And this was an interview that he gave uh, uh, just, just a year or so before he died. And the journalist, the Russian journalist doing the interview, explicitly asked Kryuchkov about the question of the UFOs. And, and, and Kryuchkov essentially says no. He says that he has no information about, about the UFOs. But he does say that that the, the Soviet leadership was interested in this question and that they did task the KGB to find out as much as they can about the UFOs. And he also mentions that they also were interested in the, in the, the Yeti, the snowman, which is something <laughs> really? interesting. 
trying to find out if 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 the accounts are true or not. Uh, but of course, I mean, you know, we we have to take all of this with a grain of salt because, after all, would would he really reveal any state secrets? Of course, he would not. But he also, it's also interesting to read between the lines. He also mentioned a lot of uh, secret technologies. So he hinted that perhaps some of these so-called UFOs uh, sightings are connected to secret technologies uh, developed by different countries, including the Soviet Union. So in other words, there could be technologies out there that are kind of mind-boggling compared to what we know publicly. So, so that's something to keep in mind. And I think his interview hints at that. He also hints at the, at the possibilities of the human body. What he says is that human body itself is not well studied and that humans could have certain abilities and potentials that are not accepted by the current state of science. So in other words, he's hinting at the KGB perhaps uh, trying to understand and develop these, you know, still human potentials that 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 we don't know about or we are not told about. Okay. So I would so I would I would focus on that. There could be human abilities that are not uh, well explored. When you say that, that makes me think of religious perspectives, or that makes me think of people who like witchcraft, or like it makes me think of those like all of those wild philosophies or religions like that dynamic is it do you mean something like that yes yes you know colloquially you know people call them psychics yeah you know, people who may you know who may kind of have certain intuitions about something that's going to happen in the future or perhaps people who could kind of look into whatever is going on uh in in the other parts of the world i think it's called it's called remote viewing and it's it's well known that the, the U.S. government studied it uh, for a long time. So I'm, I'm talking about things like that, you know, just, I mean, if we look at, you know, human ability, let's say if we talk about music, you know, there are some uh, people who are, you know, immensely talented, you know, who play piano so well or any musical instrument so well. So it, it, it could be just the equivalent of that in a different realm. Right. Uh, and that's something that that uh, the KGB uh, also focused on, and, and of course, I mean it's it's, it's classified. <laughs> if we are talking about technologies, if we are talking about ways of doing things, uh, it's it's you know it's it's for 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 researchers. It's out there. Uh, so my my recommendation essentially is you know learn Russian, and you know begin looking through the archives. Or if you don't speak Russian, you know, some other language and also go to the archives of secret intelligence services. If you speak English, the CIA, the FBI, and, and do the research there, uh, and, you know, or ask, you know, ask, you know, Freedom of Information Act allows anybody to ask for declassification of any document. So I filed a lot of FOIA requests uh, concerning different individuals, uh, connected to the CIA and the KGB. Uh, and this is something that I would encourage your listeners to do. It's, it's fairly easy to do. And if, if you're interested in something, you can just file a report and see what, what they tell you. You know, perhaps they'll declassify something for you. You never know. If nobody asks, you know, you can never, you, you don't know. So in, in the past, you know, I, I, I uh, was able to get some documents declassified. Um, oh. 
connected to uh, connected to the the because I'm originally from former Yugoslavia. These documents were connected to the potential of the Yugoslav atomic bomb, okay. and so the CIA declassified some documents connected to this question. And I was able to write a a research article talking about Yugoslavia and the nuclear technology. And that was that was a, that was something new. It was a contribution to the understanding of the Cold War that that nobody else spoke about. And in, and in fact, you know, people still mention my article on the internet. If somebody writes about the CIA and 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 nuclear weapons in Yugoslavia, they refer to my research article. And I also have the documents, the the declassified documents, which also can be found now on the internet. It's interesting, you know, how a researcher can actually do something that's for the good of the community. Now, everybody has access to these documents that they declassified upon my request. Yeah, and that's why I believe, like, the stuff you're doing is vital. People like to throw around fake news and all, like, people are concerned about this or that, blah, blah, blah. But then stuff like that, you're, it's, like I said, I did an episode recently where a journalist is in Russia and he's, He's getting labeled foreign agents, him not particularly, but his organization is, and everyone's dealing with that. So it's tough to see that going on, but it's good when people are still able to get these unclassified, real, legitimate documents. Yes, I'm really committed to that. You know, my commitment is to the transmission of knowledge and to the idea that, you know, whatever is secret for this to become public, because we need to know about because after all, we are paying for these organizations to exist. You know, the money that they get in, the, in their secret budgets you know, comes from our work, the work that we do every day. So I think we need to know much more than, than it's out there. But it's going to depend on the dedication of researchers. Uh, and and of, of, of course, you know, the, the standards of research too. You know, and, and, you know, in my work, I'm an academic. And in my work, you know, I really you know, the, 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 the facts are what guides me and the documents, you know. So essentially I'm saying, you know, show me, you know, show me a document like this that has, you know, the, the KGB here and something that they wrote and signed. This is what I want to see. So in my research, I refer to documents like this, you know, where you've got the signature of the KGB general here and something that he wrote and signed. So that's, 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 my, that's my standard right here. Awesome. I think that's a great place to wrap up the show. Philip Kofacevic, uh, thanks so much for coming out to the show. Uh, thank you so much, Bill. And, you know, any anytime. Sounds good. And a final, final question. Is there anything you'd like to tell the audience? Uh, yes, 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 please. You know, check out my blog. And I also have a Twitter account, uh, Czechist Monitor. Uh, and I'm sure you have it in the show notes. Uh, and so please, you know, follow me on Twitter, uh, check out my blog. I plan to have uh, a lot of stories from the archives. So what I plan to do essentially, you know, find a document and then tell a story in English about it. Uh, and so that's, that's something that in addition to my academic work, uh, I, I want to popularize the work from the archives. Essentially, I want, I want to popularize the work that's based on archival documents. I want to get more people into the archives, I want to get more people into studying the actual documents rather than listening to somebody speculating about something that never happened. 
Yeah, the speculating can make for like a fun story sometimes, but you want like the real, which could be even more fun for all we know. Uh, the, the 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 best stories are stories that are real. You know, life is stranger than fiction. And that was Philip Kovacevic. To see more information about him, be sure to go in the description and you'll see links to his blog, his Twitter, anything you need. If you're tuning into the radio, be sure to go to podcasttheway.com so you can start listening through the podcast. You'll find that, more information, great trailers, great videos, follow on social media. There's a lot more there. I highly recommend you check out the podcast. Go to podcasttheway.com. And this is FM 91.7, WHUS Source at the top of the hour. And 90.3, WRIU, South Kingston at the top of the hour. As always, deuces. This has been The Way Podcast. If you want to know more about The Way Podcast, go to podcasttheway.com. Podcast